because of their heads and their ability to, to build relationships and their ability to understand what it takes to have a business. And I want girls to understand that if they want to be successful creating financial freedom online, they have to start treating this as a business and stop treating this as a pageant, a beauty pageant. That was like goosies. (laughs) So when they can do that, that's when they're going to see everything that they've ever wanted come to life. Preach, preach. Yes. I love how you said that because, you know, treat it as a business. Do not treat it as a pageant. Can we make that into a meme? (laughs) I think we need to make this into a meme. Treat it like a business. Don't treat it like a pageant. That's so real because I noticed like the shift, even with my business, you know, when I'm going from just, oh, let me just make a social media. So when you're focusing on a business, you're thinking of strategies, marketing, what do I need to do to, you know, stay current? What does my audience want to see? And this whole mindset that I'm now experiencing, it's like mind blown. And people don't realize how much work yeah. goes into Literally, this. The yeah. society is turning one big porn. Mm-hmm. Like everything, everything I see, not even, I'm not even talking about OnlyFans. I'm, not, I'm just talking in general. It's kind of like there's the dancers and then there's the ones throwing the money and it's, this two thing going on. And I, I applaud anybody who can go, you know what? No, I'm stepping out of that. I'm here strictly to help people and show my passions. And if it only helps one person and one person alone, that's all that matters, you know? Mm-hmm. And what would you say is your biggest lesson that you've learned or even your biggest life lesson that you've learned? I'm, I would say to stop putting people on pedestals and stop trying to see people in their highest form or what you know they have potential to be. Start seeing people for who they are and don't have expectations. I have a real tendency to always see people in their highest self. Even if they're not there at the moment, I want them, I can see their potential. So I open up my arms and then I always end up getting disappointed because I have all these expectations. So don't have expectations. That's really powerful because that just speaks to what an empath is. Because so oftentimes as empaths, we always want to see the good in everybody. And it's not to say we're naive because we're not naive because we can pick up on people lying like flies on shit. If you are lying to us, we I don't know. know. Why I hate that saying so much. I don't know. Why. We just know when people are lying. Okay. We'll leave, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But you know, we, it's like our biggest superpower and it's almost like our worst trait. If someone had to ask me, what's your best and your worst trait? I would say the same thing. It's the fact that I always want to see the good in people. And the downside in that is that we put people on this pedestal and we kind of look at them in this idealistic view of who we think they are, who we want them to be, or what we will hope they become. And when they don't meet those expectations, it can be disappointing. It can be devastating. It can be hurtful. And sometimes we have to remember that people will show us exactly who they are and we have to see things for who they, we have to see people for who they are in that moment, not who we want them to be, Right. who who they are right there. And that's a hard lesson that I know I've had to learn because I always want to see the good in people. But on the flip side, it's almost one of your biggest superpowers because no matter what, you want to see the good in everybody. You just have to hope that that person 
is genuine. But, but I think as a female, and then being in the industry that I'm at, you get underestimated a lot. And I see a lot of women and a lot of females feel like, well, if I'm this age, there's no more for me to go. You know, so take it while you have it. Or you hear that comment, like ride the wave. You hear that a lot, right? No, be the wave. Mm -hmm. Who cares if you're going to measure yourself in a limited belief of only your appearance, and that's how you're going to market yourself only as your appearance, then yeah, you're going to have a shelf life. But that's not where it ends. So there's so many different types of narcissists. But there's a couple of there's a couple of cornerstones of narcissism. Like if you're in a relationship, you're gonna see the lack of empathy. You're gonna see entitlement, entitlement to to use you, whatever you have, your resources, attention, sex, money, everything. And you're also gonna see a um, just a lack of like connection, a lot of criticism, um, a parasitic lifestyle where you feel like they're using you and soaking up all of your energy. Um, and yeah, most of the time, the cycle of narcissistic abuse starts out with like love bombing. All right. Like that's why I focus so much on love bombing, like pulling you in, selling you the dream, future faking and all of that very quickly. Like before they, they even get to know you, right. They want to get you hooked on them. So they sell you a story and then the devaluation stage starts. So that's when it's all the criticism, the abuse, it can be physical, mental, emotional, sexual, financial, all of that starts in the value stage. And then the discard stage. So this discard stage, a lot of people get this confused. They think like, okay, he's just going to ghost me and leave me, or she's just going to ghost me and leave me. But this can be a process of keeping you trapped in the relationship while they're pushing you away at the same time and continue to break you down. Mm. So a lot of this stuff will show up in ways that a lot of people haven't connected to abuse before. Because as you were saying, in the mental health field, even in the DSM, they don't acknowledge CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which happens over a stretch of time. Okay. So if you're in a relationship and you feel like you're constantly being like pushed to the edge, there's a lot of abuse going on. It may be covert in certain ways. Um, you're probably with a narcissist. Love bombing is such, it's the most important part of the narcissistic abuse cycle. I say this all the time. It is the part that keeps you dialed in. They're dangling the carrots. So they start off, comes in really fast, really heavy with, you know, promises of a future, future faking, marriage, um, very early on before they, they even get a chance to know you. Um, it could be gift giving. It can be just putting you on a pedestal. You're the best person that I've ever met. All of these promises that are just like, there's no genuine anchor to them because they don't know you yet. So what they do is they move through the world trying to get people dialed in and addicted as soon as possible. So that's the love bombing. So if you ever feel like you've met somebody and, you know, people aren't the only people that do this. This is organizations use love bombing also, the ones that want to get people like dialed in and, and really devoted to them as well. It's just a system that they run off of. So during the love bombing phase, um, it's really a phase where they just hijack all your happy hormones. Okay. So you're completely like, devoted to them as far as like feeling good, you know, they're going to build you up to a place that we call idealization, which you can't really reach. There's no like genuine anchor to that. So that's how that starts out with the love bombing. And you could always like, if you're an empath and you're very intuitive, looking back on it, you could always feel like this doesn't feel right. This person doesn't even know me. Like, how do they feel this strongly about me when they haven't even like, it's two days in, you know, you'll hear a lot of like, 
I love you on the second day, or I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Like when, within the first week, I want to have kids with you, all of these things. And that's just to get you really hooked on that promise. Okay. So the more, when they start to devalue you, when the abuse starts, you're, you're really like tied into that, that future that they painted for you. So that's the whole purpose of love bombing. And they do it periodically, like through, through the relationship as well. So a lot of people think that it just starts out like that at the beginning and that person goes away. But the thing with, about narcissists is that they know how to turn the love bombing back on when they need to breadcrumb you and like give you a reason to not leave. Okay. So that's going to happen throughout the relationship. And again, I think it's the most important part of narcissistic abuse because if they were an asshole, hundred percent of the time you would leave, you know, so that is very, very important. Um, and it usually is what, what causes what we call cognitive dissonance, like conflicting thoughts and beliefs. So a lot of people, you know, when it comes to people that stayed in relationships with narcissists, other people will be like, well, why did you just leave? If somebody was treating me like that, like I would just leave. But what they don't see is a very covert love bombing that's happening behind the scenes that keep you, to keep you there, right? To keep you giving them like second, third, a hundred chances. Um, and then gaslighting that happens throughout the cycle of abuse also. So basically during the phases where they are abusing or are whether covertly or overtly, um, whether they're being like disloyal and because most of them usually are serial cheaters. Right. Um, and you find out about this stuff and they have to use gaslighting. They have to get you to doubt your own thoughts. They have to get you to doubt your own memory. Like that never happened. You could see proof. You could see text messages, emails, all of these things. And they have to get you to really doubt that you ever saw it. Right. So they're just painting you another picture to kind of like deconstruct your reality. And so that's what gaslighting, that's what gaslighting is. And that's how it shows up in the relationship for the most part. Can the narcissist love their children? Are they capable of loving their spouse? Can they love? Or is it really just so much about them that they're not capable of loving? Yeah, so this can be, this is a hard one. Um, again, narcissism exists on a spectrum. But when we're talking about those that are pretty high on the, the, on the spectrum, um, they don't have the capacity to love. They don't have the ability that you can't have love without empathy. So a low conscious disorder has impaired or zero empathy. So, so most of them don't, you know what I mean? Like most of them see their children as pawns and they'll use their kids to manipulate and they'll use their kids for narcissistic supply and to triangulate them with the other parent, with the empath and all of this. So most of them know, and you know, psychologically speaking, they, they don't know how to love. They know how to imitate love very well. Um, they know how to use the idea of love to get what they want but they don't actually genuinely feel a very like heart-centered, empathic love. That's sad. Um, like, yeah, it is really sad. Yeah. And even when it comes to, yes, children and spouses, one of the biggest hurdles when it comes to leaving the narcissist is acceptance. I have a workbook that talks about radical acceptance, accepting the fact that they never loved you because they don't have the capacity to. They were using you for narcissistic supply. And that's why they can just move on to the next person as quickly as they they met you and start love bombing the next person and start the cycle all over again, because there is no love there, right? You can't just turn love off. Like it's really hard for us to turn love off, but for them, no, because it was never there in the first place. They see you as a utility. So just like we have a phone, like how we use our phone for everything that we need. If it was the break, 
you know, we would get a new one or we put it down when we don't want it and pick it up when we need to use it. Like that's how they see humans. And that's why they actually most of the time have multiple sources of supply going on at the same time. So that's why most of them are serial cheaters because they need a revolving door of supply. So it's not about love and it never is about love. Even marriage for them is, is more of a contract. You know, boundaries really set a solid foundation for us in, in all of our relationships, friendships, you know, our, our work relationships, coworkers, colleagues, things like that. Romance. I too, we, we do have a ton in common because because I too struggled severely in, in my romantic relationships. I really didn't have all that much trouble with friendships or things like that, but it was the most intimate relationships for me that, you know, our parental relationships set the tone for that. What, what they say is acceptable. We tend to take into those other intimate relationships in our life, but you know, boundaries allow us to respect ourselves, And and for me, I'm not sure for you as well, but respect was often confused with obedience and control for me growing up. So my parents would demand respect, but it was because I was disagreeing with them and I wasn't doing what they wanted me to do. It wasn't actual respect. So when I grew up and tried to be in a relationship, I was like, you need to respect me. I didn't know how to cultivate that. And I think that was really kind of the game changer for me, realizing that shouting it at people was not working. I had to figure out what I needed to do differently to allow in that respect and, and you know, push out the people or the situations that weren't willing or capable, you know, and, and I try to see because I've had that relationship with my parents, I try to see everybody through a filter of like, they're not trying to hurt me. They're not out to get me, but, you know, they might just not be capable or willing or equipped to meet my standards or respect me the way I need to respect it, be respected. And that, that is also a game changer when you learn boundaries, because it becomes less this, this action of, you know, like, let me control you and what you're doing to me or with me and more, Hey, here's what I need. And if you're not capable of of providing it to me, it's okay. Somebody else in the world will, or plenty of people will, but you just might not be that person. So when you learn that though, then it's, it's like freeing because you're not running around trying to attach and control everybody and change them. You're giving them this freedom to be who they are. And you're owning who you are and really standing in your worth and saying, treat me this way. If you don't want to, that's fine. It's just, there's consequences to that. And I just might not be in your life in the same capacity. So for those that are trying to maybe set better boundaries with other people, how do, how does someone know when they need to set a boundary with someone? Something hurts you, right? Like it's that simple. Something hurts you. And, and this is where we complicate it though, right? Because Because when you do have that awareness of like, I could have trauma, it could be my nervous system reacting to something from my past that's not present, then you question that. You're like, am I really hurt by this? Or is this me projecting something onto the experience? It doesn't matter either way. If it hurts you now, it hurts you. And you need to speak up. When you have supportive people in your life, you know, like, like my boyfriend now, I mean, this is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, in my entire life. And it's 
all new to me. He's all new. So he's had a healthy upbringing. I have not had a healthy upbringing. Luckily, he has a master's in counseling. (laughs) And he's probably a secure attacher too, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's really supportive and really nice. And he's very patient with me. And he also knows I'm going to do my work, right? Like if I realize I'm struggling, I'm going to take it and figure it out. Not going to make him figure it out for me. But, you know, to your point, like, I will often misinterpret things or, you know, misunderstand things because I'm filtering it through my past. And he is very good at being like, I understand why you feel that way. However, that is not my intention, right? Like, I'm not trying to hurt you. Whereas, like, for me, People have only ever tried to hurt me. Like the closest people have deliberately tried to hurt me. So that's that, you know, when you speak about trauma, it's like, I need more experiences of that to, to outgrow it, so to speak, right. To to no longer feel unsafe in the presence of someone who is actually safe. And so if it hurts you, that is your indicator. If this is annoying me, if this is frustrating me, if this is hurting my feelings, if this is making me feel insecure or unsafe or unsupported in any capacity, that is your opportunity. And I always encourage anyone get clear with yourself first before just like lashing out. You know, you have to regulate, manage your own emotions before having a productive conversation. But once you get clear on this is the thing that is hurting me. You know, when you speak to me in this tone or when you don't call me and communicate where you are, whatever it is, then have that conversation. And supportive people in your life are always going to be willing to respect you or meet you in the middle and compromise. So that's the confusing part about family, right? Is we've got an expectation of how they should have treated us. We've got comparison of how other friends are families behave with each other. Well, at least for me, that's how it happens, right? Like I'm looking at how my friend's mom and her interact and I'm like, why can't you be like that? And then you get to a point where you accept them, but then you get confused is accepting them, tolerating them. No, there's a clear distinction between I accept this is who you are and these are your limitations. That doesn't mean I'm going to tolerate your bad behavior or your temper tantrums. And, and that the other part that I think is really important is like, those are the boundaries that work for you. They're not harsh. They work for you. And what's going to work for someone else is going to work for them. And it's going to be unique to their situation. You know, some people might watch or hear me tell a story about my parents and go, I don't know why you stay in touch with them. And I go, cause I find value in these relationships. That's my business. These are the relationships I want to maintain, but They've changed over time and they continue to change. And I also have gotten to a place in my life where I no longer internalize the way they behave. And I start to look at them through the filter of like, you're hurt, you're really hurt. And I can only imagine how your upbringing was. I've only heard bits and pieces because you guys suppress and repress. But at the end of the day, like I see hurt and pain and it's not fair to me but I'm not, so I'm not going to endure it, but I can have compassion for you and I can have empathy for you. And I don't have to tell you to go, you know, F off or like block you out of my life, but there are going to be boundaries. There is going to be more distance if you're going to continue 
to behave in ways that are not productive for my life. Yeah. If you are an anxious attacher, you are going to feel like nobody that you're in a relationship will ever get close enough to you. You'll feel like you're constantly chasing them, that they're running away. Um, you might feel like the things that you want and need are too much. Um, you might have had partners call you high maintenance before. That's an, that's a, an indicator of that too. Um, an anxious attachment. It seems like you only feel comfortable when your partner is like on you. Like if, if they're hanging out with you, making time and they're in your space, you feel comfortable. But the moment they leave your side, if that anxiety starts building and you're wondering, when are they going to see me again? You might be an anxious attacher. I feel like that was 100% me when I was younger. And I still exhibit some of those behaviors. And one thing I was reading about was activated attachment system. So I found that really interesting. So what does that mean, especially if you're an anxious type? And how do you recognize when your attachment system is being activated? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to take it back to the to infancy again, right? So you've got a baby and it's laying in a crib and it notices that it has a need. Maybe it feels hungry um, or maybe it's afraid and it needs some comfort, right? So the baby in that crib um, doesn't have like conscious thoughts. It's a baby, but its brain is going to go, I notice that I have a need. I'm going to cry out because every time I cry out, something good happens, right? My mom comes and comforts me. Um, that's our attachment system. That's the attachment system in play. Um, when we feel a need that we have and our, and our body and brain feels compelled to do something about it to make us feel safe. Um, so on the anxious side, when we feel our activated attachment system, that's our body and brain saying, I feel that I have a need for closeness. We act out to try to make that happen. Um, sometimes our acting out is to over contact someone. That's when you send 30 text messages or you're calling them too much, right? That's, I mean, we might as well be babies in a crib crying out for, for our, our security blanket to come back and comfort us. Um, interestingly on the avoidance side, their attachment system gets activated when they feel too much closeness. Um, their safety and security is in independence and they, they tend to find themselves coming down to calm when they're alone. Um, and of course, those are the folks that the anxious people date. Any sign, any slightest hint of abandonment is going to set off, um, an anxious attachers, um, um, like the alarm system or attachment system, right? We are hypervigilant, meaning we're always on the lookout for abandonment. So I remember at my most anxious, I would feel like if my significant other, from the moment they left, it was almost like pressure was building up. Like, like right when they left, it was fine. But then like five minutes, 10 minutes, one hour, five hours. And the longer they were gone, the louder those alarm systems in my head would feel like bring them back, get them close again. I don't, I don't do that anymore, but it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work to be able to tell myself, look, they're not leaving you forever. But that's, that's what an anxious attacher at their worst is going to feel the longer their significant other is out of contact or let's see, signs of abandonment would also be maybe like if your partner's phone is buzzing in their pocket, your an anxious brain might say that's definitely somebody else that they're interested in. Um, 
I guess you could probably think of lots of examples from your own life too. If you leaned anxious, it's anything that's going to make you start sweating and worry that your partner is thinking about or going to leave you. And it reminds me of what you were talking about in the beginning of that study that was done with the babies. Like that's what I think about where the mom's yeah. leaving the room and the baby's mm-hmm. like, where's my mom? Where's my mom? Where's my mom? Yeah. And I'm not going to feel better until she comes back. And it's like almost Absolutely. the same thing. When's he coming back? Or when is she coming back? Or, you know, whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. But it reminds me of that. And I, yeah, man, I've been there because especially in my younger days, I used to have those types of anxious behaviors. And it yeah. triggered that abandonment. And I didn't feel better until that person was either exactly. contact or with me. I found this comforting when I was studying this and your listeners might too. There's a reason that those alarm bells feel like life or death. Um, because for an infant, think of like cave days too, right? If you're, if you're following your mother around and you're a little helpless child and you lose sight of her and if she can't find you, you're dead, you know? Like the stakes were are very high for an infant that can't reconnect with their mother. They will literally die. So that's our, that's our wiring in our brain. That's why it feels like a life or death kind of thing that like, you'll be telling your brain, like, don't text them again. This is a terrible idea. And then you do it anyway. Um, because the stakes feel a lot higher in your brain than they actually are. We are not, we're social creatures and we're not meant to have to completely self-soothe. Um, that's why solitary confinement is such a terrible punishment. You know, humans are not meant to, if we feel very, very stressed out and activated, we're supposed to call upon our tribe and our group or our significant other or our family unit to make us feel better. That's okay. But on the, um, extreme end of that, if you can't comfort yourself at all, then it's almost like your partner is a lifeboat. And it's like trying to save someone who can't swim, right? They're going to pull you down under the water with them. So I think we need a healthy amount of relying on our tribe and our significant other. And we also need to be able to self-soothe, especially in situations where, for example, the texting thing, if my significant other is at work, right? And he's gone for eight hours, I need to be able to have a calm, regulated system for a very reasonable amount of time for him to be away from me. If I don't, that's a problem. You know, that's me being somebody drowning who can't swim because, because you shouldn't need to have somebody text you throughout the day in order for you to feel like they're with you, you know? So it's, it's balance to an anxious attacher. The world looks like a place that is not going to meet our needs. It looks like a world where there's lots of things that we want, but we can't get them, right? Meaning closeness and affection and sex and reassurance. So that's our worldview. The world is a place that's not meeting my needs. So when we go out in the dating realm and we're sitting down across from a secure person who's going, you're wonderful. I would like to take you out again. I think you're so great you know, they're, they're throwing that reassurance and love out at you. Your brain goes, this feels wrong. It it might, there's no activated detachment system. You might feel bored, right? Like you might feel like that person's too desperate, right? Like, why do they like me? I haven't even done anything to earn this. Um, I know that for me, I can think back on lots of dates that I was on where I was just bored to tears, or I thought, oh, he sounds super desperate. I'm not calling him back. (laughs) Um, Because he was not affirming my worldview, the world's a place that doesn't meet my needs. And if love is real, I need to pursue it, right? Um, The avoidant attachers are on the other side of the spectrum. In their worldview, 
the world is a place that needs too much from them. So when they sit across the table from a secure attacher who's gone, oh, you're going away next weekend? That's awesome. Have fun, right? When they leave them alone the entire weekend, they're going, this person doesn't want very much of me. That doesn't affirm my worldview that the world wants too much for me. They must not like me very much. And then they don't feel that spark of attraction. But then you put an anxious and an avoidant attacher across the table from each other on a date. And there's the attachment person with stars in their eyes going, oh my gosh, you're so great. Can I see you tomorrow and the day after that? And the avoidant attacher is going, oh, this is like somebody who wants way too much from me. They must really like me. This feels safe. Um, and, and that starts the pursuer distancer cat and mouse kind of back and forth between them. So, so hormones really control everything. Hormones are produced in various glands throughout our body. They control diet, they control insulin, they control testosterone. They're essentially chemical messengers that are sent throughout our whole body. Um, they are affected by age. I mean, there's so many things that affect hormones. It's, it is so challenging to, you know, give a one sentence answer. They affect everybody and everybody's stress, lack of sleep. Everything affects hormones. And it's amazing if you find somebody and they are low and you treat them, the changes in their lives. It's just, it's crazy. And what I find interesting about hormone and, and the more, the more research that I've done with hormones, especially because I've gone through that myself is just the roles that they play. And oftentimes I know in my past, I thought, well, maybe I'm just depressed. Maybe I'm just stressed out. And it's, it's such an interesting correlation sometimes with what stress can do with hormones, what hormones can do with other parts of the body, how they can affect our mental health, how it can mimic different things. So let's maybe start out with stress. When someone is stressed out or maybe they're going through a life stressor, divorce, moving, military, oh, all wow. these things that can cause all these stress stressors in our lives, how does that affect hormones? What's the effect of stress on hormones? So what happens with stressors is they affect the hypothalamic pituitary access. And what happens is your body creates a lot of cortisol and cortisol is awesome. It's, a, it's helpful at a certain degree and it's harmful beyond that certain degree. The problem is you don't ever have an on-off switch for cortisol. And so when you have increased cortisol, it stimulates insulin, it stimulates um, fatty acids in, the in your liver to be the availability of them for the increased need for the energy, for the fight or flight, for the situation that you're experiencing, for the trauma, for the military action, for you know, injuries, illnesses, anything that you're going through. The problem is once they are overstimulated, then you have issues and you have a disconnect between your endocrine system and your nervous system. And everything is then on all the time, like your skeletal system. Everything is tense. Muscles are tense. You can have headaches. You can have migraines. You can have injuries. Everything's just always tense. Um, cardiovascularly, you can have increase in blood pressure. You can have heart attacks because your vessels get real tight in your respiratory system. You have airways that get real tight because, you know, you, they, they, they just occlude. So you have increase in your work of breathing. You have rapid breathing. People will send, have a sensation of panic attacks. Now, most people are fine with those, but if you have an underlying medical condition, 
now all of a sudden you're going to have issues. Now, so they used to look back and we didn't really talk about trauma, young trauma. We didn't talk about, um, you know, child abuse. We didn't talk about spousal abuse. We didn't talk about, you know, maybe coming from an environment where you were having to have a job as a young kid and go to school and you were having a lot of stressors early. And, you know, so trauma type of things that have happened, Mm -hmm. there's a lot more studies being looked at and looking at trauma as kind of being impactful on PTSD, depression, anxiety, adrenal fatigue late, because again, those traumas, those events were super stressful. And if you, it's not just one event, it's usually multiple events over time. They can be really small. They can be frequent. They can be big, a couple of big events, loss of a spouse, loss of a family member, you know, car wrecks, you know, anything that causes adrenal fatigue. So now that we're starting to kind of look at some of those things in traditional medicine, in holistic medicine, and we're treating those things early, we're looking at that trauma piece. We're starting to, you know, see some of those reasons why people who are in adrenal fatigue that maybe we wouldn't expect to be. You know, their jobs aren't so bad. They're, you know, they have great marriages, but maybe they had significant events as a child, significant events as a teenager that just kind of already were depleting them. And then over time, you just get more depleted. And that's really what it is. So yes, as you're younger, you can handle a little bit more for sure. Absolutely. You recover, you rebound. The problem is, you know, when we're in our 20s, we're in our 30s, we're going out all night, we're getting two hours of sleep. We're running ourselves at max capacity. And over time, that takes a toll. And so we have to get younger people to realize and take a look at themselves and protect themselves. And that's what this is all about. It's about protecting yourself when you're younger. Um, as we age, everything diminishes. And that sucks. Everything. <laughs> does suck. <laughs> I'm not Horm- looking forward to that. <laughs> Hor- hormones diminish. Cortisol diminishes. Thyroid diminishes. You know, um, the, the products that break down our food diminish, um, everything diminishes. And so this is where you have to really be looking and you have to take care of yourself and you have to, you know, be getting good sleep and you have to get morning sun and you have to, you know, make sure you're hydrating. Use the word no. I empower my people. Use the word no in your vocabulary. People will abuse you. People will use you. And step all over you and they won't stop until they're done with you. We have to get in front of that. We have to protect ourselves. And that's huge. But it almost sounds like the body doesn't quite know when to turn that off. So if you're abusing that for so long and the adrenals are just in like adrenal fatigue and your cortisol levels are constantly stressed, it's almost like, well, how does the body know when to regulate? It doesn't. It, right. it loses that ability. That's right. that's that's the problem with the chronic piece of it mm-hmm. is your body forgets to turn itself off. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we talk about protection. And, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, I, I tell my especially my female patients, I'm like, you cannot be a good mom to your kids. You cannot be a good wife to your husband. You cannot be a good employee to your work. Although I say work, I don't care about work. Your focus needs to be your family. And that is your focus. I said, your work was there before you got there. Your work will be there after you leave there. Your work is one of those people you have to use the word no on because boundaries, you have to create them. And so I tell them, you cannot be the best person you're trying to be to your people unless you're good to yourself. And, Absolutely. And, and so that's something that I am 
part upon them. And I tell my patients all the time, yeah, I do a lab review. Yeah, I, I prescribe medications, things like that. Half of what I do, honestly, is life coachy stuff with my people. I keep, I'm a taskmaster. Right. I keep them on task. I ask about your diet. You remember when we've had oh, conversations. Yeah. You kept me how's, on it. How's, how's your how's diet? How's your sex life? How's your sleep? How's your sleep? Are you saying no? What's happening? Lack and of again, sex life every time, be, but. <laughs> because if you're, because if you're not, I'm not, I don't want to be the traditional person where you just come rolling in and we look at some labs, mm-hmm. nothing's changed. You don't feel any different. Okay, cool. Let me run your insurance card and I'll see you in six months. That's not the purpose. We, we're different. We're, we practice different. We want our, our patients are different. The things that I've heard over the last, I've been a PA for 18 years, but I've been doing this field for about the last eight. It's amazing the changes that happen in people when they buy in mm-hmm. the changes that happen. And so I- picture a map of the United States. Put a pin, a single straight pin in Dallas, Texas. So the straight pin in Dallas, Texas, that's sex for a female. The rest of the US map, that's their family, that's their laundry being done, that's the kids are at home, that's the car payments been made, that's the house is picked up, that's everything else. And so sex is a very low part of a female's brain. And so in, unless everything else is in order, they're going to be off. And so men have to really pay attention to that. And a lot of men, so now let's turn that around. What's the men's brain? Okay, put a straight pin again in Dallas, Texas. Now, Dallas, Texas is the man's part of the brain that's looking at the organization, that's looking at, are the kids at home? Are the bills paid? The rest of the U.S., that's sex for a man. And so our brains are totally wired differently. Very differently. And so, so again, I think that's a very important fact to remember is no, not everybody is on the same wavelength, the same amounts. And so hormones are huge. And one of the bigger hormones, at least for both men and women, is testosterone. Now, everybody knows testosterone is important for energy and libido, sex drive. The problem is it's not just energy and libido. It's focus. It's drive. It's motivation. It's memory. It's less emotional up-down. It's lean muscle mass. It's better sleep. It's, it's anabolic. If you lift anything, you get stronger. Your insulin works better. My diabetics, type 1s and types 2s, I tell them, when they start testosterone, I tell them, you have to check your sugars regularly. And a lot of them end up turning their meds down because insulin is more sensitive. And it's absolutely true. And most of them are like, no, this can't be true. Absolutely true. It has, it's monotherapy for depression. It can help with stronger bones. It's anti-inflammatory. So yes, the energy and the libido piece are huge, important. The day-to-day functional basis, the rest of that stuff I talked about, to me, that's so much more important on a day-to-day functional basis. That's your job. That's your family. That's interacting with people in the community. You're going to be so much better at that. Yeah, it's, it's just like on, on average, uh, a man, and it's, it's not that he needs to have a lot, right? And so, But the thing is, Every single day, you know, he can meet a woman who's just who just really want to fuck. That's it. And so if he, he's meeting mm-hmm. several women all the time, like, oh, she just want to fuck. That's that's all. That's good. And then he meets a woman like you thinking, OK, he, he can come at you the same way because it's a pattern. Men, I'm telling you, all men work on patterns and scripts. So once he learns this works for this girl, this works for this girl, he's going to try you. And then if it doesn't work, he's like, oh, no, nah, I need to go around that. But and again, like I mentioned before, every man 
has that one woman. I remember in college, um, I, all my fe- all my guy friends, I used to, they like every girl on campus. I always tell them they only get one. After that, I'm talking to everybody else. I'm talking to every girl. But if you told me you really like her and you really want to be with her, I'm going to leave her alone. I'm not going to try to talk to her. But if I'm not going to let you sit here and say you want to talk to every girl. That's, it's just impossible. You know, but uh, I do believe that every man at the end of the day is chasing one person. So do you think it's cultural? Do you think culture has affected dating or do you think it's just... I think it's multiple things. Yeah. I think like yeah. the divorce rate is higher now, right? Almost 50%. So the dating pool is like, it's overflowing with people, mm-hmm. you know? So people, mm-hmm. you know, a couple decades ago, people were staying together more, obviously. And yet I can't find a date. <laughs> <laughs> the competition is like increasing. And then not just that, it's not just the amount of people in the dating pool. I from like what I see and like from, you know, I have a lot of clients that are single and they tell me everything. So from what I see, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to do something that you won't do. Mm -hmm. And depending Mm -hmm. on where that man is in his phase of his life, you know, they might take advantage of that a little longer into their years than they would have if had it not been available the way that it is now. I think that, I think that a high value man is going to definitely be attracted to a woman that's not going to force him to work a lot, like chase her and mm-hmm. all this. And I feel like I bring all of those things to the table. And that's what gets me because I know that I am a high value woman. I am. And and I don't think that's a bad thing knowing that. And I think as I've gotten older, I've known my worth even more. But I will say that when you have certain standards and when you know your worth, it is a lonelier road. Yeah. And mm-hmm. a good yeah. friend of mine, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, told me, you know, I told her, I don't have relationships or dating that lasts more than five, six weeks. And she said, that's because you're dating correctly. You don't stick around for the red flags. You don't stick around for the bullshit. You know what you want. And if they're not meeting those standards, you move on. But I will say I'm very reasonable. I, I just look for chemistry. If you can meet me on my own plane and if we can be a good match. But nine times out of 10, they end up being very ingenuine, dishonest people. And it usually comes out pretty quick. So mm-hmm. what about social media? Do you think social media has played a hand in how dating is today? Because I think it has. Donna? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Is that your DMs or is that like, so, you know, it's oddly enough. Um, I don't get that many DMs that are like hitting on me, maybe just like a compliment here and there, but no, like asking out dating stuff like that. Teresa and I get the guys from India. We get a lot of guys from every day, every day. Sheets or something. You know, like, like so sexy, so sexy. And then they call me like through Instagram. They call. Okay, I do get that. Yes. I think they're real accounts. They're, oh. they're, so they flood in. I'm going to start tagging Donna. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, Donna. After this podcast, they're going to call you. They're going to call you next. That's crazy. So they call you and you hear the voice. Actually. Yeah. Like, Hello. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Like I told my husband, I'm like, what is happening right now? He's like, there's got to be a way to turn that on. And, you know, okay, to, to my fans from India that are listening, because I know I have some of you listening, I appreciate you and I love you. Just it's, don't call her. Just don't be inappropriate. <laughs> don't be inappropriate. I don't want to see my pics. I don't. Oh, wait. You don't we- want to see my dick pics. <laughs> 
No, I don't. Who doesn't want to see my dick pic? I don't. I never invited you to send me the dick pic. <laughs> yeah, I just think for free. Who gave you permission to send me the dick pic, sir? So ghosting no one- is super traumatic. It's also a covert form of abuse. And the way I would define ghosting is somebody disappearing out of your life who you've actively been communicating with. They didn't set a boundary. They didn't ask for space. They didn't say they don't want to see you anymore. You reach out to them. They're not answering. And you continue to reach out to them. And they continue to just leave you on red, give you the silent treatment, and not respond or answer your questions. And that's a great definition because that's exactly what happened to me. And it left me feeling extremely confused had no idea what was going on. And to me, because I am just a communicative person, I, I, I don't understand why you can't just communicate that. So for me, it left me feeling very, very confused. And one thing I posted about ghosting not too long ago, and I got an influx of people who kind of attacked me a little bit. So I want to ask, what's the difference between ghosting someone out of respect for yourself or just avoiding someone because you don't want to deal with the issue? You know, that's a great question because everybody really gets this confused. There's a clear distinction between you respecting yourself and you ghosting someone. You respecting yourself is you upholding a boundary that you've communicated to another person. So if you've said to somebody, listen, I'm really stressed out. I don't have time in my schedule right now. Can I get back to you in a few weeks? Or can we like pick up where we left off in a few months? That's a boundary. So if they reach out again, you're upholding your boundary by not communicating with them because you've already let them know where you stand. But when there's no communication, and that's the distinction here, when there's no communication of a boundary, that's when it's ghosting. um, I remember doing research on avoidant attachment. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's a correlation between having an avoidant attachment style and someone who ghosts? There's definitely a correlation because somebody who's ghosting you has a problem speaking up for themselves. And usually that's coming from a fear, probably back in childhood, of a fear of backlash or a fear of punishment or a fear of abandonment because they're asking for something and they're trying to claim their needs and wants. And they fear that you're not going to be able to respect it or give it to them. So truly, the person ghosting people is the one with the insecurity they are fearing abandonment. And in them ghosting you, you end up feeling abandoned. So that's kind of the fuckery of it all because they leave you feeling the exact way they're avoiding trying to feel. If you have something unspoken inside of you, when you're in that moment of feeling ghosted, there's no harm in you sending a very thorough, clear message just to get that out of you. Because the goal with emotions is you want them out of your body. You don't want them recycling that narrative that might be painful. So even if you're blocked, send the message that says, hey, you could have just communicated to me that you were no longer interested. And, you know, and, and say everything you need to say so you leave no words unspoken and then let it rest. It's not about their response so much as it is getting it out of your body. Another alternative, if people don't feel comfortable doing that, is to maybe just write on paper or text it to yourself what you would have liked to say to them. Because I think that's where we have a hard time coping is we have unspoken words and they're just recycling inside of us. And we don't feel that's the part of ghosting that really sucks. 
is we don't feel like we were given a space to feel heard. Nobody gave us a chance to communicate. We were dismissed. We were, you know, neglected. We were abandoned. And you're left with all of these questions. So why not throw it out there? I tell clients sometimes like, just call them out on it. Hey, is this you ghosting me? You know, I'm not down for that type of treatment or that behavior. You could have just let me know you weren't interested, but good luck to you. I'm shaking my head because I'm like, this is speaking to me. I always write stuff out and my friends make fun of me because I will literally go in my notes section and I'll have three different options to send to the person, at least in this situation. I'm like, okay, so I send option one, option two. And yes, sometimes women, we do this, we talk to each other and, you know, because I don't want to be that girl sending paragraphs. I've been there, done that. I'm 35. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I ended up not doing that in this situation. And a part of me regrets it. If somebody is wanting to respond to a poster, I know for me, I was really debating on sending this long paragraph and saying exactly how I felt. But I stopped myself because I didn't want to be that girl to send paragraphs. But do you suggest that somebody just lets it all out because you have nothing to lose or you know, should we keep it short and sweet and to the point? I really am a strong proponent of regulating your emotions before saying anything to anyone. So definitely don't like unleash your fury in their, <laughs> <laughs> in their inbox or anything like that. You don't want to send like five paragraphs and then walk away feeling embarrassed or, or something because now there's no response. I would sit down with yourself, get clear about how you're actually feeling. And then if at that point, once you're regulated, you want to send something that says very directly and transparently what you were wanting or needing or how you were feeling, then I would say, keep it a little contained, keep it short and sweet, get to the point, but get it out of you for sure. Once again, if you like what you are hearing, please share this with someone. If you have a friend a family member, a coworker, or anyone in your life who you think would resonate from one of these episodes, send it to them. Maybe they're struggling with their relationship. Maybe they're struggling with having gratitude in their life. Maybe they're struggling with having a narcissist relationship in their life. Send them an episode that you think will resonate. And I want to hear from you. If you like what you hear, if there's something in one of the episodes that resonates, I love hearing each and every one of you I love when you guys tag me, keep tagging me on your posts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. And you can always follow me on social media, on my Facebook, Therapeutic Healing by Reese. I often do free live tarot readings on there too. So I would love to see some of you and meet some of you online. Seems like that's the only way to meet people in these COVID times these days. So thank you guys once again and see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.